more than 100 years since Moriori were slaughtered, enslaved and falsely classified as extinct. A true account of their story is about to be entrenched in the law. Moriori descendants and representatives of the Crown will meet in the Rekohu, or the Chatham Islands, today for the signing of the Moriori Treaty Settlement. It includes an agreed historical account, a Crown apology and $18 million. Kia ora, welcome to The Detail. I'm Emile Donovan. I grew up believing a myth that the first peoples of this country were a tribe eliminated by Māori. Treaty Negotiations Minister Andrew Little believed the same thing. What I learned at school was Māori were, were gone. They were an, an original race and they were effectively eliminated by Māori. So uh, I've learned an enormous amount since then. It goes back to the work of Michael King and other historians who did the scholarship and were able to start to tell the story that Māori are a living and thriving imi of Māori and, and they are still here. The Moriori myth has persisted for more than a century, absorbed and parroted by generation after generation of New Zealanders. And this is a bit weird, right? It's not like the truth has been hiding under a rock. The story of the Moriori has been known and understood by mainstream historians for decades. So why has it persisted for so long? Where did these myths originate? And what is the true history of the Moriori people? My name's Maui Solomon, and I'm the chairman of Hokotehi Moriori Trust. Maui Solomon is one of the pillars of the recently concluded treaty claim. He's been fighting for recognition and for a correction of the historical record for more than three decades. I grew up in uh, Taumukaha, or Tamuka as it's now known, about 100 miles south of Christchurch. My grandmother is Ngaitahu from Arofinua, and uh, she married... Tommy Solomon, and after he died in 1933, my grandma took um, my father, who was the eldest son of Tommy, and uh, her other three surviving children back to Tamuka. So that's where we were all born and brought up. I was told by my social studies teacher that uh, there was no such thing as Moriori, that um, that either never existed or that they had been a myth. And even when I said that my grandfather was Tamihurumunarehi, or Tommy Solomon, as he's better known, and that he was a Moriori of full blood, the teacher still said, no, that was just, uh, that was a myth. So that story was pretty common for, you know, all Moriori descendants growing up from the 1940s, 50s, 60s. Some of those statements are still made today. There's still a great misunderstanding and mythologising about Moriori. And, and this is one of the things we hope that the settlement, the agreed historical account with the Crown and Moriori will finally uh, lay to rest. You were always aware of, of the, the true story here. How did that come to pass? Who told you? I, I really started my, I suppose, my journey of discovering my Moriori identity at the age of 23. I just graduated from... Uh, University of Canterbury with a law degree and had helped to organise a Huno reunion in Tamuka and um, the family had nominated me to be the chair of the Tommy Solomon Memorial Trust Foundation to to raise funds to put up a statue of our grandfather on uh, at Manuko on Rekohu. Um, so I then got a job in Wellington in 1984 as a law clerk and I spent many hours 
reading and studying about researching Moriori history at the National Archives and Turnbull Library to find out all I could about about my ancestors and about what had happened to Moriori. So that's really when I started on this uh, on this long journey. We're about to go on a bit of a journey too, Moriori 101, and that journey begins with a pretty simple question: Who are the Moriori? Very similar to Māori, but with their own language variations, their own traditions, their own art forms. Moriori are the Wainapono, the original inhabitants of Rekohu Chatham Islands. And according to our oral traditions, the, the first ancestors arrived directly from eastern Polynesia through Rungamai Whenua, Rungamai Tere, and settled there. There were later Waka arrived, so we're talking probably seven, eight hundred years ago, most likely from the east coast of uh, the South Island, North Island, and found people already in uh, occupation. So they're the descendants of Rungamai Whenua, or Ngā Uri o Rungamai Whenua. And um, some of those waka stayed, uh, others uh, left and returned. So all Moriori uh, today uh, hokapapa or have a genealogical connection back to uh, Rungamai Whenua as the founding ancestor. So according to, to our traditions, um, there are two streams of settlement, to Te Kuhu, one directly from eastern Polynesia, and um, secondly, most likely from the east coast of the North Island. The Chatham Islands, or Rekohu, which means misty sun, are an archipelago of 10 islands about 800 kilometres east of the South Island. While they are politically still part of New Zealand, the climate is very different to Aotearoa. It would have been like landing on a different planet. The climate is, is sub-Antarctic in the wintertime, so very cold, very windy. So they would have found a an island in the south uh, southeast Pacific that um, had plenty of seals, plenty of um, birds, plenty of fish, crayfish, shellfish. Kumara wouldn't grow because it's too far south, uh, it's too cold, uh, and their only source of carbohydrate was from either fern root or the kopi uh, trees and the nuts that they come from the trees that they planted because they'd brought the kopi tree with them. So it would have been quite um, a, a strange environment to, to be arriving in um, if you had come from directly from eastern Polynesia or, or even from New Zealand because the Chatham Islands is, is quite a unique landscape. One of the most significant figures in early Moriori history and probably in the entirety of Moriori history is, is Nunuku Whenua. Tell me a bit about Nunuku Whenua and, and his importance to Moriori culture. So Nunuku was a tuhuk or a, a tuhunga, spiritual leader of our people, and he lived uh, in a cave on the western shore of Tefanga, the very large lagoon uh, in the centre of the island. And one day he heard fighting around the shore of the lagoon, about a couple of kilometres from where he was at that time living. He went among the, the warring factions and decreed from that day on that fighting should cease and that, that people should learn to live in peace. And if there was any uh, conflicts, that they could fight with a wooden staff, twice the thickness of uh, a thumb, and first blood drawn, honour satisfied, no killing. So he, his words were, koro patu 
Kuru Tangata Mere Chap Tuaki, meaning from this day there shall be no further killing. The people obeyed because he also laid down a curse that uh, should they break with that covenant, they would be ostracised from the collective, from the tribe, and um, you know, alienation from the collective back in those days pretty much meant that um, you know your days were numbered. So um, for five, six hundred years, the, the people lived by that uh, covenant of peace. Where did that covenant of peace stem from? What was the motivation behind it? You know, it was passed right down from the time of Mu, uh, Feke, Rungamai Whenua, and right down to Nanuku. So Nanuku was um, renewing what was uh, an ancient covenant. And I I think it was also a a common sense response to their situation at that time that um, I think there was a realisation that if you keep fighting and killing one another, it's a zero-sum game and everyone loses. And also because Nanuku Whenua was a highly respected iariki iariki, or leader, he was acknowledged as such by both the warring factions uh, at that time, and um, so it became, it became written law for them. Now, while Abel Tasman was the first European to spot New Zealand, Reko, who had no contact with Europeans until the late 18th century, Captain William Broughton landed in November of 1791, and he and his crew immediately claimed the territory on behalf of the Crown. Relations got off to a bit of a rocky start. There was a brief period of hostility and a misunderstanding led to a Moriori being shot and killed before Broughton and his crew left, though both sides felt a wee bit guilty for overreacting. The Europeans also brought foreign diseases to the island, such as influenza. This killed some 10 to 20% of the population, which by the early 1830s numbered around 2,000. But in 1835... Another disaster struck. There were two sub-tribes of Te Atiawa, Ngāti Mutung Ngāti Tama, living at Waifetu Marae over in Patoni here in uh, Wellington. And they had joined forces with Taraprahar and come down to Wellington from northern Taranaki in the 18, in about 1822-23. One of their uh, uh, relations had been on a whaling ship in 1834 to Rekuhu and came back to Waifetu Marae, told them of Rekuhu. He came back to Waifetu and told uh, his people there about the island, peaceful people, uh, plenty of kaimona. And at that time, Ngāti Tama Ngāti Mutunga were looking at um, evacuating Wellington and so were drawing up plans to either invade Norfolk Island or Samoa or some, somewhere else, but they decided that Rekuhu was closer and, um, you know, there was a pretty much a sitting target because Moriori were a people of peace. So they commandeered a, a ship out of Wellington Harbour in uh, November 1835. And so uh, the captain took two boatloads from Wellington over to Rekuhu in late 1835. When um, the first boatload arrived, uh, they, they landed at a place called Whangaroa, or Port Hut as it's known, uh, today and um, it had been a pretty difficult journey. They were packed like you know cattle into the holds of the ship, so they were very sick and unwell when they first arrived. And um, they were nursed back to health by Moriori. And then the second um, boatload arrived. 
soon became apparent to Moriuri that the um, newly ar- arrived people had begun to, to slaughter and enslave our people. Um, so they met at a place called Te Awapatiki. A thousand people met out there. That's uh, where they had their really important hui in about March 1836. And they debated over three or four days what response they would make to the invasion. And the young men, as young men to want to do, wanted to fight back against the invaders because they could see the writing on the wall. But the elders pretty much forbade fighting and killing because that had been outlawed. The power of life and death had been you know, taken from the hand of man and put into the hands of their gods. They'd been warriors back in the day and um, they'd lived in peace for 500 years so they weren't going to violate that covenant. So they decided instead to offer peace and to share the, the island with the, um, with the newcomers, but that was thrown back in their face. The invaders were merciless. About 300 Moriori were slaughtered and the rest of the population enslaved. In 1862, the remaining Moriori wrote to the New Zealand governor, George Grey, begging the Crown to intervene. They recorded the 1,700 names of those men, women and children who were alive in 1835, and they put two crosses beside those who had been killed and eaten and one cross beside the names of those who had died either of kongingi or despair or through the brutality of slavery that they'd been subjected to for 25 years. And of that 1,700 there were 1,561 names that had crosses beside them. That's genocide by any international standard of those terms. But sadly, the Crown knew about this and did nothing about it. They stood by and and let that happen, even though as early as 1836 and 1841 and 1848, people like Bishop Selwyn had been to Te Kohu and reported back to the, the colonial government what was happening, but Moriori were just an inconvenient truth to uh, to the government of the day. What were the consequences in terms of Moriori culture and the continuing sort of bloodline of Moriori? Was that culture repressed? Did the Moriori bloodlines continue to live on? That's a good question. Um, the, the the consequences for Moriori culture and language were devastating. Um, Moriori were forbidden to marry. They were forbidden to speak their own language. Um, they were forbidden uh, in the early days to have children. They were treated appallingly. And, in fact, the Waitangi Tribunal said in its report that if there was a, a, a scale of slavery in New Zealand or in the world where one was at the, the softer end, Moriori um, were at ten. You know, the darkest... Uh, it was the worst form of slavery that could happen because there was nowhere for Moriori to go. We were captives on, on, an, on our own island. The population collapsed from, you know, 1700 in 1835 down to 110 by 1862. So that's, you've lost over 90% of your people by that stage. 90% is a lot. There aren't too many ethnic groups that have come back from those sorts of numbers. But 90% isn't extinction. So where did the myth that Moriori were wiped out originate? Well, it's a convoluted story, but it's important, so hang in there. One of the earliest thorough accounts of the Moriori was written by the farmer and interpreter Alexander Shand. It's called The Moriori People of the Chatham Islands, Their History and Traditions, and it was published in 1911. Now, Shand's account, by and large, is pretty solid, but he died in 1910, before the book was published. 
One of the chapters was instead written by Stevenson Percy Smith, a once respected historian whose work is now viewed more sceptically given the liberties he took with the source material and understanding of indigenous tradition. Shand had no input into this chapter. Obviously, he was dead. And this is the chapter which provides a Māori account of Moriori settlement on Rekohu. Smith had his information from a Māori scholar, Fatahoro Juri, who had heard the account from a different scholar in the Wairarapa, and it was then translated by Smith into English. Smith's explanation is that Moriori had originally been based in northern Taranaki, had been pushed out by later more aggressive troops, uh, uh, tribes who had arrived in Aotearoa. They had fled to the mouth of the Rangatike River. Um, conveniently, a, a Cody log had been floated down the river. They built a canoe out of the Cody log, sailed it over to Rekohu, and that's how Moriori got there. So Percy Smith um, had placed them Moriori in New Zealand to only be driven out by later more aggressive Māori, and he also said that Moriori were the original tangata whenua and that they were Pol- uh, Melanesian, not Polynesian. So, a classic case of lost in translation. The question of why the narrative's been maintained for so long is a bit more nefarious. That myth then became uh, taught in schools. So from 1916 onwards, um, school journals were, were publishing and teaching these this myth to generations of New Zealanders, who many of whom the older generation still believe it today. And the reason it became so powerfully ingrained in the psyche of, of New Zealanders is because if Māori could push Moriori out of New Zealand, then later European migrants could push Māori off their land. It suited the narrative. It suited the narrative, and it was a justification for um, European colonisation of, of Māori land. And so not only did Māori lose in that narrative, but Moriori, having lost our lives, our land, our language, our liberty, we lost our very identity because we became a scapegoat to be used um, by both Pākehā historians and by Māori. What is the status of Moriori now? How many Moriori are there? We have uh, 2,000 registered members including children, but we we believe there are at least, you know, 6,000 people of Moriori descent. Earlier this month, Moriori representatives met Treaty Negotiations Minister Andrew Little to sign their deed of settlement, concluding a process Maui Solomon began 32 years ago. The terms include an agreed account of Moriori history, a Crown apology, the transfer of culturally significant land on Rekohu, and compensation to the tune of $18 million. But a fair question crops up. Why is the Crown compensating the Moriori rather than the original aggressors, Ngāti Mutunga or Ngāti Tama? Yeah, well, you know, we didn't have a, we don't have a, a treaty settlement with Ngāti Mutunga or Ngāti Tama, and if we did, or, or a treaty, um, you know, we'd be seeking redress from, from them. But, um, you know, the Crown uh, seized sovereignty over Rekohu in 1842 by virtue of the treaty and by doing that the crown assumes um, rights to to sovereignty Um, even without our agreement we didn't actually agree to that they just did it Mm. so 
uh, with rights come responsibilities. Now, it's taken the Crown from 1842 up until 2020 to actually acknowledge and do something about those responsibilities. Um, and, and so that's why we, um, we're settling with the Crown. I, look, I can understand um, some people saying, well, you know, the settlement should be with Ngāti Mutunga and Ngāti Tama, but that's just not the reality. Um, the treaty is with the Crown and our relationship is with the Crown and, um, and that's why we have the settlement we have today. You have a young daughter, Hinemata, is that right? Aye. What did you tell her when she was growing up? Yeah, well, I have two sons, Kahu, uh, Tamarawariki, and uh, and Hinimata. So I always told them to be proud of their their Moriori identity, and um, I think just involving them in coming along to Hui to Wananga. So they were both well. My older son's in Australia, so he couldn't be at the the signing, but th- they've they know who they are, and they're proud of their Moriori identity. Um, and I didn't. I wanted my own. Timiriki to to know who they are and know about who they are and if someone asks them that they can respond. My second wife, uh, Susan, because we have a blended family and she has two boys, Jasper and Tasman, Forbes, and they have Ngāti Mutunga whakapapa back to the island. So in our own family is, is an example of, of how peace and harmony can exist uh, between Moriori and Ngāti Mutunga. That's the detail for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail was brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave us a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Maui Solomon. Ka kite anō.